If you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be starting off in verse 1 this morning, which is where we need to be. All right. Now, if you're with us last week, we started kind of into something. This is like kind of part two of last week. Uh, Paul, as he was unpacking things in Ephesians 4, uh, revealed to us that the way he kind of understands the Christian life is by way of comparison, right? And, and so last week, the comparison was, well, there was an old you and now there's a new you. And he says, don't live like the old you. The old you isn't you. The new you is what is to make you tick because the new you is in Christ. And so he says, put off the old way of life, be renewed in your mind, and then live from that in a new way because that's who you really are. That's the comparison. And today he kind of continues that same idea of comparison, not between the old you and the new you, but a comparison between what the lost world does and looks like and what the saved world does and looks like. And that's a really critical comparison because he's giving us direction, how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to function, how we're supposed to believe and love and do all that we do. And sometimes we struggle with that. And so Paul wants to ground us in the ideal that we pursue. So starting off in chapter 5, verse 1, he says something that is the pinnacle of what we shoot for. He says, therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. Now, I'll tell you why this is helpful. It's helpful because we are all built to imitate, every one of us. I don't know if you realize that. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, you were designed for imitation, right? So God says we are going to create man in our image and likeness. And then male and female, he created them to bear his image. That means we were meant for imitation, Right? Not to imitate anything we want, but to imitate the one who made us. Right, So that's our design. But in our sin, in our rebellion, in our pride, in our cleaving to other gods instead of the one true God, uh, we began to imitate other things. Right, So we are great at imitation. Now some things we imitate aren't bad things. Like in my home, for example, uh, it's funny, we'll watch an episode of Duck Dynasty. Yeah, that's America, baby. All right, so... We'll watch an episode of Duck Dynasty, and after the episode, we notice the whole family, minus my wife, who is actually on top of it, uh, we're all talking slower and like having a lot more like accentuation of our syllables. I don't even know if accentuation, I don't know if I said that right, but um, it's been too much Duck Dynasty. All right, so, but like, you know, we'll be afterwards, and I'll say, Grayson, you need to go to the kitchen, you know, and he'll be like, all right, dad, you know, like, like we're just... You know, kind of imitating, you know, and, and, and Grace in particular, he, he loves to go Uncle Si, so it'll be like, what are you doing, you heifer? You know, like, and uh, great line, all right, so imitation, right? You just can't help but imitate. My, my kids, they'll watch Doctor Who, and then after Doctor Who, here he comes, oh, what's going on, chops? No, no, we're not British, you know, like, but they imitate. Uh, I imitate, I notice sometimes when I'm preaching, my mentor will just kind of come out out of nowhere. And I'll be like, I just channeled Jim Harper out of nowhere. He's my mentor. And that sounds like something Jim would say, right? That's imitation. We all sort of latch on to something that we imitate, right? Well, the great thing what Paul says is do yourself a favor and go to the pinnacle. If there's anything you want to really strive to imitate, anyone you want to strive to imitate, imitate God as beloved children. You say, great, how do I imitate God? Well, you just imitate God in the person of Christ when you walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Right there he says, you know what, the best way to imitate God is to love and is to serve. Right? This is the way that you even bring worship to God. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Right? We, we give our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. This is our spiritual form of service and worship. And so as Christians, we want to think that way. You may not be a Christian in this room this morning, and we're glad you're here. A lot of this message is not directed at you. It's directed at Christians who are to live in such a way as to model to you what this good news of Jesus is all about. And so what we want to do is imitate God. We want to exercise true biblical love. Now why that's important is because where Paul's going to go in verse 3. 
right? He's like, imitate God, exercise true love, biblical love, divine love, holy love, pure love, which is very different than what we see in our environment. Verse 3, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Then drop into verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so Paul does what he does so well, he juxtaposes ideas, right? There's true biblical love, and then there's the opposite, which is self-gratifying love. That it's all about me versus it's all about God. And Paul looks at this and says, man, man, you got to make sure that you imitate what God is, who God is, what God does. You want to think like Him and speak like Him and act like Him. That's what we're called to. Don't give in to these other things, this trifecta of brokenness. And when I look at that, I go, man, not only is it the trifecta of brokenness, but it is the trifecta of American consciousness. These three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, this is like the big three exports of our culture. Which I I know is going to be a little bit uncomfortable even to to say that because we have a tendency to look at America and the world and go, no, 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 but we offer so much good and we offer so many things that are right. And I'll say, yes, we do, but there are some things that we do as a culture that we accelerate, that we protect, that we cultivate, that we spread, that are destructive. And this list gets to the core of those things. And, And as we go through this list this morning, I want you to know what today is is basically me knee, solar plexus, and chin. I mean, that, that's how this is going to feel. You, you, there's going to be some of you that go, man, I, I, I feel like I got beat up. And I'm going to say, well, in Jesus' mighty name. That's how. All right. So, because I, I, I look at this list and, and I, I look at the context of the world that we inhabit, the time that we are in, and, and I, I see this list of things and I go, man, increasingly... This is a list that finds life in the Christian life. Shouldn't, but it does. Because as we learned last week, we get in this slide, and as we travel through the slide, we start to erode our own sense of boundaries, and we give in to things that are not God's best. And so we see this list of three things that are pretty important to tackle. And I don't mean tackle by point at the world and say, here's what they do. I think to graciously but honestly and sort of sternly look at in our own world, in the church, in the Christian life and say, man, how is this true of us and how are we to be different? How can we redeem the time in a different way? Now, the first thing in the list you see is sexual immorality, right? And what is true is that the human race has this drive to take this thing that God has given and to figure out how to twist it and contort it in such a way that God is not honored or celebrated or worshipped in the context of that. And this happens two ways within the church, and they're two very distinctly different ways. The first way that there is a type of sexual morality in the church is when the church, and this is going to sound like a weird one, but it's when the church does not celebrate openly, actively, and passionately the gift that God has given Right? We do that when we kind of suppress the topic, when we don't make much of it, when we don't celebrate it biblically and accurately to our children and to our people. Right? There's this thing that happens within Christian circles sometimes that says, uh, sex is really precious and really pure, let's not talk about it until you're married, and then we'll talk about it. Or we'll reference it like, uh, you get your birds and the bees talk, there it is once, and it's real precious, here's your promise ring, now let's not... Let's not discuss it too much, right? And that robs the beauty. You go back to, to like Song of Solomon, right? And, and it's a great book because what you see is the older woman is training and celebrating with the younger unmarried women the greatness of this gift. And the older man, the husband, is celebrating with the younger men the greatness and the beauty of this gift. And man, there's all kinds of bragging about the wedding night and bragging about what they do and everything else. And it's a celebration, It's not just this quiet thing. One of the worst things we sometimes do within the church with our kids as we're raising them is we say, you know what? Um, Sex is important. 
and how you handle your money is important, but we don't really train you a lot in either one of those, right? We train you in all sorts of other things. We make sure you go to school for all these years, and you know all these other things, and you have good etiquette and everything else, but the two things that may most wreck your life or bless your life, we don't do well to train in. And that is an immoral reality. It's taking the right things of sex and not imparting them. Another way that sometimes even within the church that sex is, is, is improperly handled is that you actually do save yourself, you do get married, you save it for marriage, and then once you're married, you don't do it very often. Right? Like, you go, oh, well, it's really important, so important we don't get around to it, you know? So it's seen as kind of like, oh, when you're married, eh, you know, it's fine, whatever. Where the world, on the other hand, they take the beauty of what God has given, and they twist it all around, right? So where we might be quiet about it, they're very loud about it, right? And where it sometimes gets treated like, oh, the married world is a bummer, boy, in the single world, it's awesome. And so they celebrate the awesomeness of how it happens in the single world, and they manipulate it, and they take it to these boundaries that just stretches the purpose of it beyond design. Right? And so much so that then what happens is the world keeps chasing and wanting and, and, and stretching and is never fulfilled because, again, it's not God's design. Right? That's another form of immorality. The problem is, in Christian circles, in the church, uh, sometimes we blow it on how it should be celebrated, but we start to embrace the wrong ways because we are looking for something more exciting. We're looking for something that might be more fulfilling. We're looking for the enthusiasm or the, the mystique or to, to get something back that we feel maybe is lost or maybe even the world is promoting an idea of sexuality that we go, that might be more fun, more interesting, more revolutionary for our lives. And so we pursue the impure ways, the immoral ways. Now what are the immoral ways of sexuality as it's handled? It's interesting. Um, Paul, this, this word he uses here is a very generic word, right? So he's kind of like, all things that the Bible would talk about in the realm of immorality when it comes to sex, all of that is encompassed in this phrase, sexual immorality. So, just so you have a sense of what I'm talking about, go from the most uh, destructive, harmful, wrong things that pretty much everybody is going to affirm is wrong. Things like rape, right? That is wrong, that is immoral bestiality is referred to in the Old Testament. That is immoral. Then you have things like adultery, homosexuality, premarital sex, pornography. Right? All of these things fall under this label of sexually immoral. Now, now here's why I say that. It would have been not too long ago you could say that and everybody would nod their head and say, yeah, I believe that to be true. But, but it's weird. You know, I've been a pastor now for right around 20 years and, and I've, I've dealt with some interesting situations on this topic and uh, increasingly what what we see in kind of counseling or whatever is that, that that things that it used to be just a given was wrong is like well is it is it right we've counseled with couples ellen and i have that that say well you know what in our marriage in our relationship we bring pornography into the relationship because that that helps us Right? And they go, because we both agree, then it's not wrong. Watching pornography isn't wrong if it's just the two of us because we agree that this is good for our marriage. And I say, well, no, just because you agree doesn't make it right. It just means you agree on something that's wrong. But the attitude is like, no, but if we agree, then it makes it right. And it's like, well, God says, no, man, I love you too much to affirm that that is right because that's not right. That's not reality. That's, that's wrong. Or we've dealt with couples that claim Christ and are swingers. And they go, well, wait, we agree to this, though. We're consenting parties, and because we agree, we're not cheating. It's not adultery. We, we agree on this together, so this is what we do, and so it makes it right. And we would say, no, it doesn't make it right. It means you agree on something that's wrong. But they claim Jesus, right? This is some of the challenge. Couples will say, you know what, but we're getting married. We love one another, right? And because we're getting married, I'm going to buy the car, so I should be allowed to test drive it for a while. And I say, man, I understand where you're coming from, but, but, 
just because you think it's okay doesn't mean that God thinks it's okay. What you think is acceptable and moral, God says is still wrong and immoral and not fit for God's people. It doesn't mean you're not God's person. We're going to get to this in a minute. It doesn't mean you're not saved. But it certainly means that you're not wanting to necessarily comply with God's standard for what it means to be saved in the realm of sexuality. And so Paul's saying, man, if you're going to redeem the time, if you're going to live different, this topic must be different in our lives. It must be. There's no place for these things in the lives of God's people. Now, sometimes what makes it challenging is we do live in an environment that says, no, 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 these things are acceptable, these things are okay. Or we change words to make these things not sound so bad. For example, uh, what used to be just called pornography is now, ready? Adult entertainment. Adult entertainment. It's for mature audiences only. Like, that's the benchmark of maturity now. I watch porn. I'm an adult, you know? I'm mature. That's not the benchmark of adult. That's not the benchmark of maturity. You, you go to some places, and you know what they have? Gentlemen's clubs. I was wondering where all the gentlemen hang out. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I see all these guys with top hats and canes going into this place, and I'm assuming they're talking about Chaucer and world economy in there. Um, because they're gentlemen. They even hold the door for the ladies that aren't really dressed. All right? So, um, right? And, 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 but we just we change the vernacular so we take all the edge away. It's mature, it's adult, it's gentlemanlike. I mean, but that, that, that reminds me of Isaiah where he says, man, up is down, right is left, dark is light, like is dark. That's broken. And we live in an environment where it's broken. And instead of pretending like it's not, we'll do well to remember that it is. And instead of trying to excuse it away, we'll do well to embrace the truth of it so that we can be different and say, man, that's a serious deal. And it's not just a deal for guys. I know on this topic, sexual morality is mostly kind of tethered to males, uh, but increasingly it's a female dynamic as well. In fact, uh, my daughters have a joke and they say all romance novels and romantic comedies are chick porn. And by that, you're like, really, chick porn? Yeah, it's brilliant because it's still a fantasy. It still sets up a standard that one's husband may not live up to. And it causes a wife to go, man, I wish I had this over that. I, I wish my husband was more, more romantic. I wish he just swept me off my feet. I wish he just read my mind, which is romantic novels. Um, fiction, right? So, <laughs> so all that is, right? And that is... Chick porn. In fact, in the last couple of years, the weirdest thing happened, right? Um, this trilogy came out, Fifty Shades of Grey. And I remember I was sitting at Barnes & Noble, and literally within a one-hour span, there must have been 20 women that grabbed that book, right? And so I, I went home to my wife, and I'm like, man, what is the thing with this book? You know what I mean? Because yeah, it's pretty graphic, it's all these kinds of things. I mean, why are women kind of taking all of this up? And the bottom line, I mean, it's so crazy radical fiction because if this was a story about some dude that was blue collar making $50,000 a year, it would be called uh, Fifty Shades of Never Gonna Happen, right? Um, it was, right? Honestly, you know what I mean? Like, dock worker, you know? Like, ah, the ladies are gonna come a running, you know? So it, it was, he was, you know, multi-millionaire, totally chiseled, was worth saving, right? Fiction, pornographic fiction. I don't just mean even in the sexual stuff, but just the idea that stirs one to go, I wish I had this and I'm discontent and that would be more fun. In fact, the weird thing about that story is it bridges, bridges two of the, the, the words in this text, right? So the guy in the story, um, you know, he's got his sexual issues. The woman in the story She's greedy, right? She wants the rich life. She wants everything at her beck and call. So for her, her problem is covetousness or greed, right? So he is sexually immoral. She is covetous. And man, greed or covetousness, that is an American virtue. It is. It's a virtue in our culture. I mean, nobody likes the word greed, but, but everybody wants and everybody wants more. And marketers and companies know we want more, so they keep reminding us that we want more. Right? They keep giving us the newest thing, the biggest thing, the best thing, right? The extra thing. 
It's like you get your Xbox, and then after a while, that's not enough. I need the 360. You have to get the 360. Now it's not enough. I need whatever the new magical one is that's coming out here this year. Uh, you know, that one, right? Uh, we were recently helping a friend move, and uh, um, he, he was cool. The rest of us were sinful. Uh, he had this big TV, but it was really deep, and we're like, dude, you need a flat screen TV. You need one of the thin ones. Part of it is because we don't want to carry this big heavy thing. Um, <laughs> We need you to need, uh, you know, like that. But, but again, what do we do? I need this. I need that. Right? Now, other people, they're greedy. We are needy. Different, right? So it's always that. I, I've never met a person that says, you know what? I'm greedy. Never. I, I, I've heard plenty of people point to other people that are greedy. I've never met a single person that says, I confess, I am greedy. In fact, we excuse it away. I'm not greedy. Right? We have all our things. I just want to provide for my family. I just want to make sure it's just we're average. We're middle class. I, what, sure. None of us want to admit that perhaps we're greedy because that would be admitting that we give in to idolatry. We don't want to admit that. But we might be. right? Because we do have this tendency, I want newer, I want more, I want bigger. You know, I, it's funny, man. I always like, I go to the store and every once in a while, I'm like, I should get a candy bar. And there's always the regular Snickers and the bigger Snickers, right? Bigger, better, more. And I go, yes, I want more. It's bigger than the little one, right? And it's cute because I get bigger as it gets bigger. Um, <laughs> somehow gluttony and greed are tethered together. I don't understand the formula, um, right? But coveting. And so as Christians, we go, all right, immorality, sexually, I don't want to give into that. Coveting, I don't want to give into that. Because those are the things that make my world tick. One's a virtue, and one is just heavily um, invested into and engaged within our environment. As Christians, should we, we should be different, especially also in this area of impurity. Right? He says impurity should not even be named among us. And I look at this idea of impurity, and it's just anything, again, that's anti-pure, right? It's anti-humanitarian, it's anti-beauty, anti-propriety or sanctity, uh, those kinds of things. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, he says, yeah, I got this guy in the office that is always trying to get me to watch videos on YouTube of, like, people dying. You know, these real graphic incidences that, that people record and, and, and throw up on the computer. Um, and he's just like, dude, you gotta watch it, you gotta watch it. Oh, wasn't that awesome the way they got hit by that train? That's impurity. Right? My son and I, we were at a video game store yesterday. They were playing a trailer for a new game coming out. And the whole philosophy of the game is basically you're a thug that tries to uh, beat, rob, kill, and steal from innocent people. That's the object of the game. Right? And that's just for good, clean entertainment. And I go, it's impurity. It's impurity. And see, we're all immersed in this world where these three things come together. And, and you look at this and go, well, man, how do you live in a world of impurity and covetousness and sexual immorality? How do, you, how do you find the line and how do you live in relationship to that? Paul gives the answer. He says, you know what? This must not even be named among you. Not even named. So when we say, well, where is the line? Paul would say, well, as soon as you figure out where it is, get as far back from it as you can. Right? Because what's our tendency? Here's the line. Well, how close can I get to the line? If I'm here, is that okay? If I'm here, is that okay? Here's the problem. The more we have this attitude of how close can I get, the more likely we're going to go past the line. Because we're wanting to know, how, how close is the edge? Are toes over the edge? More than toes? One foot with toes? I mean, you know, that's, that's the challenge that we sometimes face. I want to find the line. Dating couples do this all the time, right? When I was in youth ministry, they would always ask, they'd start dating, and they'd say, all right, Matt, uh, how far can we go? I'm like, really? How far can you go? You can't go past her wrist or her ankles or the top of her head, all right? Um, all of this is off limit. You know, I'm like, I'll draw the line really far, and they'll work their way to the middle still, I'm sure, right? Because where's the line? The line is, man, we should strive, love, wants to not even have it named among us. And the reason is, he says, because those who do those things, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ 
and God. No inheritance. These are the benchmarks of those who don't know Jesus. Right? They're the benchmarks of those who are estranged from God and do their own thing and think their own way and write their own rules. And all of it, God says, man, watch out. And I want you to notice, all three, it is so easy for Christians to go, ah, oh, the sexual morality stuff, and skip the greed stuff. A lot of the things that we see as sexual morality in the Bible are mentioned a dozen times, two dozen times, whatever else. Greed is mentioned over a thousand times. Let's not get too comfortable with our own vices and then point out the vices of others. All of this is to be sobering. Because again, it is the benchmark of the unsaved life. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that. And you might look at some of these things and say, you know, Pastor Matt, I, I, I struggle with some of these. Does that mean I'm not saved? If I have these struggles, I keep failing at these things. I keep just doing things that just aren't pure. I do things that are totally greedy or covetous. I, I want other stuff. I want stuff for me that others have. I'm just not satisfied. Whatever it is, uh, am I not saved if I have those struggles? Here, here's my advice. Um, if you fall and fail to any one of these things, um, and you go, man, but I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong, and I want to be right, and I want to deal with it, and I don't want to keep giving into this, and I want to grow, and I want to overcome, and I want to see victory in my life to these things. Um, you know what? That's, that's the sign of the life of the Holy Spirit in your life. Right? I mean, we always say as a church, we're an imperfect people redeemed by a perfect God. I'm not promoting that any of us are going to be perfect on these topics. What I am promoting is that our hearts should be to want to grow into greater purity on these topics and greater obedience and greater conformity to Christ. And if your heart is saying, I want to and I struggle to, at least you're in the place of you want to even though you struggle to. And the more you take on the right diet of what you take into your life and the right exercise of how you live it, the more you can see victory in these things. Now, on the flip, if you have these things in your life and you go, it's not a big deal, I don't care, it's not sin, it's not wrong, God's wrong, I'm not wrong, the world's not wrong, he got it wrong, he's too close-minded, he's too judgmental, he's too shut off, it's an old book, archaic, doesn't count for today, you should worry. I'm not saying you're not saved, that's not it. I'm not getting into that at all. That's not my point. My point is, as soon as we take the book and we go, the book is wrong and I'm right, the Holy Spirit is going to do one of two things. He's either going to stir in your heart to go, you know what, that attitude's wrong and I want to repent, or he is going to whoop you in love and say, this isn't going to go well for you. You don't want to keep going down this road, right? Because again, it's serious. The wrath of God comes on these things. It says in verse 6, it's no small thing. Because understand what the good news of Jesus is, is not just a confession of mouth. We don't just come on a Sunday morning and Scott shares the good news and somebody says, I, I confess that, and that's where it stops. No, what happens is, is when we confess our sin, there is a conversion of the person. There's a transformation. You were this and now you're that. You were old, now you're new. As we're going to see in a minute, you were darkness, now you're light. And from that, there is growth. Holy Spirit takes up residence, starts to play stuff out in your life, starts to pull things out, put things in, that kind of thing. It is putting off and putting on all of those things through the transformed mind. That is what the good news is. Jesus changed you so as to be changing you. And, and, and so in that sense, man, there's, there's victory. But we have to acknowledge that there's sin. Otherwise, if we don't see something as sin, we're never going to see victory over it because we're never going to think it needs to be dealt with. And so Paul says, man, make sure you understand that. Make sure you understand that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, there is not, there is not a future for those things. There's just not. Now Paul goes into another topic that he doesn't align the same with the other three, but it is serious. Verse 4. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, I'm looking at this verse, and I'm wrestling with this verse for weeks for one reason. I'm awesome at those. <laughs> Golly, man, alive. I got friends going, I can't wait till he gets to this one. How is he going to deal with this one? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this and going, you know what? This, this, is my, this is my sin. I'm good at verse 4. I am good at it. There's just no way around it. You give me something, I can turn it into an innuendo. It's like, it's like a double gift, all right? Like, like you just give me something, and I can, I can pop a joke about it just that quickly, right? 
I like shock value, those kinds of things. It's just, I'm looking at this going, yeah, man, how, how am I going to deal with this text? I'm like, I'm just going to confess it. I'm just going to confess it. Because I have these things. I mean, even yesterday, there's this thing in me that says, you know what? People who are idiots on the road need to know. You know, like, so it's my service to them. And I, we, I was, <laughs> which it's not. Um, like, I'm driving home yesterday, and we live up Mountain View Road, which is not a fast road. It's designed to be slow. And I'm driving home, and this dude and a Bronco blows by us. I mean, literally, probably going 65. I mean, just hauling, right? And he, I see him coming up on me. I'm like, I know what he's going to do. And he comes up alongside me, and there I am. I just want to go aces high, both hands. You know, like, I just, I'm like, ah, Ephesians 5, you know? And so I just had to give him the 10. Ah! You know? I'm like, you know, like, that's all I got. That's, there's no no weapon in that, you know what I mean? I'm like, gee, many. Earlier, somebody did it too, my sweet niece. She was in the back, and this car pulled the stupid stunt, so I just did the high five against the glass. Bam! You know, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, guy's an idiot. And I can't give him the finger, right? So I hit things and yell a lot and hold up a lot of digits, you know, and I got issues, right? So my sin right there my sin uh, man this gets me in trouble too preaching and teaching because a lot of my humor i do not plan right that is it's like driving blind it's fun but dangerous you know and so um i'll i'll say stuff and here's my gauge every time i'll say something i don't like i said i just don't plan most of the things i say joking around i'll say it and i'll look back at my sweet life wife and if she does this i'll be like <laughs> Don't ask her in the car how the message went, all right? You're going you're gonna to find out, you know? So, man, and so I say things. So all of you that were here in second service last week, yeah, that gluten thing, that wasn't... And the thing about dudes wearing scarves. Not planned. If you're 30 or below and you're a dude, you can wear a scarf. If European guys are here, you can wear scarves. I said European, that could be an innuendo, I don't know. Um, <sighs> it's just there, all right? It just, I'm a broken man, all right? So, and, and I've also found, too, in the last few months, I've, I've been pulling certain things out of my diet. Like, I, I've really pulled Comedy Central out of my diet, um, because I'm like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta get a handle on this, gotta get a handle on this and everything else. And so it's things like that where I'm like, hey man, I, I, I just know because again, this is, this is my propensity. So I, I confess it to you. I hope Reese Venterton does the same. Um, <laughs> no, see how bad I am? <sighs> just where you're at, pray for me right now, okay? Now, back on top, top, topic here. Um, so now, now, I'm not the only one, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure there are different times, you know, because sometimes, you know, people get angry, and so then they say things that are either foul or, or foolish, and either one of those apply to this, right? Some things are foul speech, some things are foolish speech, right? We threaten, we say things we don't mean, that's foolish. We use words we shouldn't, that's foul. When we get scared or we get anxious or maybe we get depressed or worried, we resort to things that we say that are not really the things that we would mean and certainly if held accountable to those things, we would never fulfill what we actually swore we would do if you did that, you know, those kinds of things. And so Paul says, man, don't do that. Don't give into filthy talk, foolish talk, crude talk, rather thanksgiving. Right? This whole thing is about being different, right? So we're different sexually, we're different with purity, we're different with money, and we should be different with our words. And when we're different with our words, man, that blows people's minds. When they're used to us, again, being angry or frustrated or flippant or whatever else, and then we show thanksgiving, that's crazy. That guy that drove by me yesterday, if I would have went, I wouldn't have meant it, but if I did, you know, like, you would have been like, whoa, that dude was way too nice for the fact that I totally insulted him on the road, all right? So, like, like, those kinds of things. 
where we show right grace and right thankfulness, right? Paul says, man, that's going to blow people's minds. But you've got to commit. goes into verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Here's what he's saying. He's like, man, I've outlined it for you. On sex, on purity, on money, on your mouth, all of these things. He says, I look at that and I say, you know what? Don't let somebody tell you otherwise that sin is sin. There's going to be all sorts of reasons and justifications. You can find a scholar, you can find a Christian, you can find a book, a blog, a video blog, whatever, to say your activity isn't wrong. Paul says, don't give in to that. Don't believe the empty words of those things. Don't excuse it, defend it, minimize it. Don't affirm those things. Don't participate. Don't approach such things with an open mind. Don't be too enlightened for your own good. Don't look and say, well, it's consenting adults. Don't look and say, well, it doesn't hurt anybody. Don't look and say, well, because it's legal, it's acceptable. Whatever the thing is, you go back to what God specifies is what we believe, and it's what we do because we're different. We're different. At least by design. It's what we're called to. That's why he says, don't partner with them. Why? Verse 8. For at one time... You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Here's what I love about this. This does not address your environment. It's speaking of your condition. Look at that. It doesn't say you were in darkness or you were in a world of darkness. It says you were darkness. You were Darth Vader with asthma and everything. That was you. You were dark. And then Jesus invaded your space with grace And now you are light in the Lord. It is your essence. It is your being. You are this. This is why Paul is saying you live different from who you are. He's not saying become something different. He says you are different, so live differently. That's the essence of his heart, right? You're now light in the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's not in yourself. And because you are light in the Lord, he says walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So this is our responsibility, it's our purity, it's our activity, all right there. So what we do, we do good, we do right, we do true. All right? That's what we strive for. Now, to fulfill being good, right, and true in our world, sometimes it takes nuance, right? Because like, how, how, how do I respond good in this situation with my neighbor? Or how do I do the right thing on this work problem or somebody in the cul-de-sac, whatever else? Well, this is why Paul would say in verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I mean, you want to have a good grid to use as you try to do what is good, right, and true? Say, man, whatever I do next, how is this going to please the Lord? So you want to ask questions like, well, what would God want of me in this context? How could God be glorified most in how I respond next? Right? Consider God's thoughts and feelings. Consider whether this is going to grieve the Holy Spirit as we learned last week or it's going to please the Holy Spirit. Right? Ask those questions. And you know what? Sometimes you're going to ask those questions, God, what do you want of me in this context? And you're not going to get some definitive answer, but you'll be blessed because you asked. You at least consulted God. There's a lot of times we just don't consult God on things. And God's like, man, I would bless you if you asked. I may not fully reveal it to you because i got a plan for you, but, but boy, you'll be blessed if you, if you ask. How does this bless God? He says, man, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Is God going to be um, singing with delight over what I do next? Or is God going to be just shaking his head and going, oh, man, it's a good thing he's my kid by grace. Right? Paul goes on. He says, as you live as light, it's not just so you can be your own little internal light bright system between you and Jesus. He says, you're meant for something bigger. Verse 11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. Now, does this mean that you are not to have association with the lost world? Not at all. We need to have association, man. We need to be light in dark places because, again, they need to see the light and love of Christ and his forgiveness, right? So it doesn't mean we don't associate, but it does mean we don't participate. It means we're not engaged in endorsement. I can love people, be friends with people, spend time with people. It doesn't mean I have to then go the extra step that says, you know what, and what you do isn't problematic. 
I'm not called to endorse everything. I'm not called to participate in the things that they do, but I certainly can associate with them and care about them. I can even spend real quality time with them, even as at times they're engaged in certain things that are things that I would engage in. For example, you got Jesus. Jesus hung out with prostitutes, but he wasn't, he wasn't paying anybody to be his prostitute. He loved on them. He was holy. He was godly. He never sinned. He invested, right? He had association with, even so much so that religious people said, ah, he's a friend of sinners, but he never sinned. Jesus hung out with the drunks, but he wasn't a drunk. Jesus hung out with thieves, but he didn't steal. Jesus hung out with lawbreakers, but he always fulfilled the law, right? It doesn't mean you don't associate. It just means you don't participate. You don't endorse. In essence, Paul would say you, you expose, right? You expose. And you expose in a very simple way. You just keep living different. That's it. You just keep living like Jesus. You just keep living the ideal as much as possible, and you do so humbly. You don't do so arrogantly. You don't do self-righteously. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to live different and to point to Jesus, humbly, graciously, compassionately, and kindly. And when you do that, when you're just living as Jesus would have you live, right, as you're living as light and not taking part in the fruitful works of darkness, you automatically expose because what they want to do with you is to drag you into what they do. It is the weirdest thing, man. I remember this in high school, like where you you would be like saying to your friends, you know, hey, man, I I don't party. And the very first thing they do is they say, oh, dude, we got to get you wasted then, right? Isn't that like the weirdest thing? Like if you said nothing, Right? You're just like, oh yeah, I might be there tonight. Like, all right, cool. Yeah, I don't party. What, dude? Oh no, we gotta get you wasted. It'd be so hilarious. Right? Or some young man goes off to college and some of his buddies find out that he's still a virgin and he's saving himself for, for marriage. And the first thing they do, oh dude, we gotta find some chick that puts out. Like it becomes their mission now to, to, to drag you in. You know? Whatever it is. Because they think it would be funny or they think it would be um, just entertaining to watch or basically they want to um, shut down your exposure rate because you're exposing you're just by the way you're living just by the things you say and again i'm not talking about condemning i'm not talking about wagging a finger i'm not talking about being preachy i'm just talking about holding a line graciously and you'll expose there's no way around it just by making much of jesus um they'll say, you're making much of, of, of what we do, and we don't like it. And I want to encourage, we don't need to have an apologetic against this. We don't need to make some big uh, defense against what lost people do, right? I mean, Paul even says here in verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He's not saying, go ahead and make some big you know, evaluation and kind of analyze all their activities and everything else. He goes, no, don't do that, man. Just be committed to being light. Just keep sharing the truth graciously he says in verse 13 for when anything is exposed by the light it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light therefore it says awake O sleeper and arise from the dead and christ will shine on you paul just gets back to you know what your job's not to condemn your job's not to complain your job's not to criticize your job is to connect and graciously share your life in jesus that jesus changes things and when you do that you will do one of two things you will Repel or you will draw. You will be light. That's all light does in the end. Light exposes, and from the exposure, people are either drawn to it or they're repelled by it. And and that's a good thing for us as Christians to own. We're never going to make the gospel so cool that everybody says, oh, I need that. I can fit into that. I can squeeze into the definition. We can never do that. The only way we can make the message of the gospel so cool that we offend nobody is that we offend God. That is it. That is it. Right? We say, hey God, sorry, you don't fit in the equation. So we'll offend you and we'll please everybody else. See, Paul knows that that is not going to fly, and so he says, you just got to be light. Some people are going to be attracted. Some people are going to be repelled. Just keep being light. He says, look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are, are evil. Are we using our time wisely? 
That's the real question. Right? We have 365 days. We have 24 hours a day. We have 16 waking hours of that 24 hours a day. How, how are we using our time? But part of that is going to be driven by whether we think the days are evil or we don't think the days are evil. And in what way we think the days are evil. If you think the days are evil because the heritage of our culture is coming apart, that's not how the days are evil. The days are evil in relationship to how God and people are connected or not connected. Right? And so if we start going, man, the days are evil because there are people not connected to God and this is going downhill fast because of that, I need to use my time wisely to connect people back to God. Not back to our heritage or our roots or our lineage to God. To God. That's, that's how we are light in dark places. That's how we bring light to those who are, who are dark. And so how are we using our time? Are we using it wisely? How are we investing our time with our kids? I mean, are we imparting Christ to our kids? How are we using our time within our culture? Are we imparting Christ to our culture? Or are we really standing out as different and being different and thinking different and our private life's different and our public life's different? And when we blow it, do we repent openly and say, you know what, this is why I need grace and we maintain humility as opposed to have a reputation of hypocrisy because we act like we have it together? We need to look carefully at how we walk. People are looking for us to be hypocrites. To say, see, the truth isn't real because you don't live up to the standard. Now, the painful thing is we're never going to live up to the standard because the standard is perfect and I am not. But that should breed more humility on my part as I look at the lost world, as I look at the saved world, but also for me to go, but through Christ, I want to grow. I want to strengthen. That's why Paul says in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Say, man, I, gotta, I just got to get back to what God wants for me. I don't want to waste my time. I was talking to a friend of mine once. He says, you know what, Matt? I spend more time surfing porn than I do praying. I'm just wasting my time. People spend more time entertaining themselves with lesser things than growing. Speaking more of our wants than our worship. Sharing all sorts of idle stories as opposed to gospel messages. I mean, there's all kinds of wasted time and we got to get back to, I don't want to be foolish. I want to do what God says I'm to do. I want to know his will. And what is God's will? First thing is this. Be who we are in him. God's will is that we would be who we are in him. And here's what I want to say about that. Um, that means don't buy into this, just be yourself crap. And yes, I said crap because I can't use the other word because of Ephesians 5. But... And here's what I mean. I, I, this is like, it's weird. I've been listening more. I've been like listening to all this music and just this message that out, that's out there that says, just be yourself. You know what? I don't want anybody that knows Jesus to be themselves. I want people who know Jesus to be what Jesus wants them to be. And that is very different than me just being myself. If Matt Boswell was just to be Matt Boswell's self, watch out. I'll probably flip you off on the 203 tomorrow. You know, because... I'm just being myself. I'll keep being flippant. I'll keep joking around. Go ahead, wear a scarf. Let's see what happens, you know? Like, um, it'll be hilarious. I'll have a great time being me. I don't want to be me. I don't want somebody endorsing, Matt, just be who you are. I want to be who Jesus has made me to be. Now, that means Jesus has made every one of us to be original, unique, and different, but it doesn't mean to do so outside of the boundaries of what Jesus made us to be. Right? It's being unique in him not unique outside of him, according to his heart and standard, not according to mine. So be who you are meant to be in him. That's his first bit of will for your life. Second bit of will is that you do so, not for you, but for him and others. Right? The more you become what Jesus wants you to be, the more it's for his glory and for you to be light to those who need Jesus. Which is Paul's whole point here, right? We expose, we invest, we're missional, we go, we do. Right? Those are his will. Following his word to become what he's made us to be so that we can give him glory and we can reach others. Right? Paul continues to anchor this. Verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. You know, this is a great thing for those of us that live in the Northwest, or as I like to call it, Little Germany. Um, right? We love our beer. We love our wine. And you know, Paul doesn't say here, don't drink. 
I mean, he has all kinds of opportunity to say, don't drink, drinking sin. He doesn't say that. He says, don't get drunk. And there's a reason he says, don't get drunk. Because drunks for Jesus don't preach gospel well, right? Um, <clears throat> you go to the bar, you get up to a .08 blood alcohol content, and then you try to share Jesus, and all craziness begins, right? Like, like I, I, don't, I go down to the tap room a lot to study, and, and oh, it gets funny. Even guys that don't know Jesus become evangelists for Jesus when they get drunk, right? Because, like, they'll see my Bible on the bar counter, right? And then one guy will look at the other guy like, hey, that guy's got a Bible. You need Jesus, you know? The other guy's like, yeah, you need Jesus, you know? And, like, one guy's preaching gospel, one guy's receiving Jesus, but in the morning, neither even remember what happened, right? Because there are no good drunks for Jesus, right? So, he says, don't be drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. Life in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, seek the Spirit. And what is the life in the Spirit? Well, then you address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking and making melody in your heart, uh, with your heart to the Lord. He says, giving thanks always for everything, God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right? When we're Spirit-filled, we're singing, we're thanking, we're submitting. All right? You want to blow the world's mind? Be that person. That when things are hard, you got a song in your heart. When things are difficult, you're thanking the Lord. When people mistreat you, you choose submission over fighting for your rights. You blow their mind. That's life in the Spirit. That's the way Jesus modeled things to us. And so we sing, we thank, we submit. In short, what Paul is telling us is don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Right? We have limited days and limited time to do limited things, and we can fill up our life with all sorts of things that are trivial, unimportant, or worse yet, destructive. And Paul would say, man, you are called to be different, not to be acceptable by everybody's standard, but to be faithful, to be focused, to be redeeming the time. Jesus, I thank you for the truth that penetrates the truth that challenges and shapes and hopefully inspires us in that too i mean these things are very negative things we fall into but you bring up these negative things to see them removed from our life for a very positive purpose which is man a declaration of who we are in you so help us remind us spur us on to be what you've made us to be we love you and thank you in your name amen